Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every week me and Miss Boo take turns picking films to watch and talk about. Some are good, some are bad, and some are in the holiday season at the Film Club. So, Boo, how are you on this fine uh, Christmas Eve? Are we at Christmas Eve yet? No, we're like a week before Christmas. Don't try to rush us into Christmas. I'm excited. Me too. And I'm hyped because today we're talking about La La Land, which... It's technically a Christmas movie. There's a Christmas aspect in it. Yes, yes. This is Boo's loosest pick for Christmas-themed film because there's a Christmas scene in this movie. Exactly. There's a Christmas scene. And this is kind of like our last like, big movie of the year because next week we're going to be talking about Christmas movies and then we have our year in review after that. So how are you feeling about today? Um, I'm feeling pretty good about this. Uh, La La Land, I haven't seen since it came out in 2016. So what's that, six years ago? Five. Five years ago? We're, we're celebrating its fifth anniversary. It debuted December 9th, 2016. So that was last week. Yeah, see, I can't do basic math. I was like, uh, five, six, whatever. But yeah, I remember really enjoying it in 2016. I hadn't seen it since. And yeah, we went to go see it together. God, that was one of our, um, I guess it wasn't an early date. No, no, that was no. that was that was in there, but it was a nice one. Yeah. But I remember watching the movie and really digging it and rewatching it now. I think I still like it, but I definitely now see kind of the flaws at the edges of the movie. You know what I mean? No. No. I, I still really love it. Oh no, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I will not flaw anybody for enjoying this film. It's a very good movie. I still like it, but I don't know. I'm probably not as as high on it as I was five years ago. Let's see if we can get Dean back on that high. Back on the train? Back on the train. Yes. So where do you want to get started with uh, La La Land? Since this is your pick. This is my pick. This is one of my movies on my list. Because at the end of the year, we're going to be revealing our top ten movies that we love. Yeah, we're going to do a whole Q&A thing. We're going to reveal it as we go. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So La La Land... Came out five years ago, directed and written by Damien Chazelle, music by Justin Hurwitz, and nominated for 14 Academy Awards, won six of them. Yeah, it was nominated for 14. That ties it with All About Eve and Return of the King? I think so. Or, or Titanic. I think Titanic was 14. But I know I know that, but this one won six, and it's also the whole Oscar controversy yeah. where Faye Dunaway read the wrong movie. And Moonlight won Best Picture, but mm-hmm. everybody's like, oh, La La gonna gonna sweep the whole thing. Yeah, I really thought it was gonna be like when The Artist came out and they took just about every award. Yeah, The Artist won, like, what, eight Academy Awards, something like that? I don't remember, but I know they won, like, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, uh, Director. It was huge. I mean, this movie was ginormous when it came out. I mean, to, to put it in context, when this movie came out, it was, like, right after Whiplash came out, which was Damien Chazelle's, like, breakthrough movie. Yeah. And he was like, all right, I can't finally get to make this movie I've been sitting on since fucking college. Yeah. And they gave him $30 million, and it comes out, and people are like, oh, it's an old Hollywood musical, and eh, that's way outdated, it's gonna suck. And then it makes, like, $400 million. And it's just like, old Hollywood musical what? It's like... Everyone loves musicals. Everyone loves Hollywood stuff related. Well, here's the thing. When was the last time you saw a musical in the theater when it was released? Not counting La La Land. When was the last time you went to a theater because there was a new musical released? Do the Muppets count? 
Um, you know what? Yeah, sure. With, with Jason Siegel. How long ago was that? The way, Muppets movie was like way before this. So. Way yeah, so yeah. like a decade. Maybe. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. So, because La La Land, usually when we get movies that are these big, you know, box office, you know, juggernauts, and they also a huge critical success. Usually, for the next like couple years after the movie comes out, usually you get La La Land kind of film. You get more musicals like this, mm-hmm. but that just never happened. No. Is it just a thing where? Like, are musicals just such a weird niche genre of films that it's just a thing a Hollywood just doesn't do anymore? I think so. Because, I mean, old Hollywood musicals, they were so larger than life. The, the 50s were dominated by them. Yeah, I mean, it was just about a couple of times a year a new musical was coming out. And I think it might have just been too too costly for the studios. You have to have big sets. You have to have tons of dancers, people that can act and sing and do everything. Yeah. I think over time, it's just kind of like, you know what? Let's save ourselves some cash. And, you know, this way we don't have to pay everybody. And then you have to pay uh, a songwriter and an orchestra. Because, I mean, this movie, it's not like, okay, they're, they're just playing off the piano or the guitar the whole time. No, we have full orchestrated numbers in this movie. Yeah, and also that's not even going to the count that to do these kind of musicals, the dance numbers, all that stuff, the amount of rehearsal you have to do is so extraneous. Yeah, because uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone were rehearsing three months prior to shooting. Yeah. So it's like you go into this movie and it's like, okay, you're not going to be here for you know just the shoot. You got to practice before the shoot. You got to do stuff during the shoot. Now, all the press after the shoot yeah. because this is... This is like, has this is probably the most um, Hollywood musical has cost the studio in the last forty years. So they need this shit to make money. Definitely. I mean, not only did Ryan Gosling have to learn how to dance, he had to learn how to play the piano so it looked realistic when he was playing. Yeah. Um, they had to teach John Legend how to play the guitar because he doesn't know how to play a guitar, but he could play the piano. And Ryan Gosling knew how to play a guitar, but not how to play the piano. Exactly. And it was just like, and, and also uh, Emma Stone had to do a shit ton of like physical like drills exercises and stuff like that because i realize i realized this like emma stone had to do oh god i think she had to do like actual physical therapy and stuff like that to get like her body ready to do all the dance numbers in this because she is in so much of this movie yeah she's she's actually the main character right she is and it's understandable why she won the oscar for best actress because i mean she gave so much and she put so much of herself into this character it's amazing yeah, yeah, I think Emma Stone is by far and away the best part of this movie. Yeah. And see, this is where I get to the point where the edges of the movie start showing up for me. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing where Ryan Gosling, I think, is a fantastic actor. Like, as as a thespian, yeah. somebody who's able to portray people who are not himself, I like him as an actor. I think he's really good. I think he's a great dancer. I think the commitment he had to learn the piano is fantastic. But I don't think he's that strong of a singer. It, it's one of those things like when you hear John Legend start like singing in the oh, thing yeah. and you, it's like it's fucking yeah it's John Legend he's yeah. really good yeah professional singer and then it's like when you hear Ryan Gosling start singing City of Stars it's one of those things where Ryan Gosling just doesn't have a very powerful like singing voice like whereas Emma, Emma Stone when she's singing in her audition yeah and it's you know such a powerful piece she's projecting it's all in one shot all these other things and I'm like, okay, she can sing. Yeah. John Legend, he can sing. 
all like when it's in the what is it, City in the Sun or something like that, the opening number. Oh, uh, another day of sun. Another day of sun. Like those people, they can sing. Yeah. Ryan Gosling, I just feel like he's okay. He's good. He's fine. But he's not a he's not a uh, blow he's, my mind singer. Yeah, right? he's not a singer. But I think that adds to his character too. He's just he's a, a musician. Nor- he's a normal guy. He's a musician, and he's trying to make his dream come true. So it's just this thing of. Well, you know, I don't sing on the stage. I play the piano. That's my thing, you know, with jazz. But it's kind of something that he does when he's on his own. Yeah, but I feel saying... I feel pointing out, it's like, well, that's just non-realistic. And I'm like, honey, they, they closed down the Five Freeway and had a whole dance production. That's how it opened the movie. I feel bring... That's my... I think that's kind of why I love musicals. Because musicals are just inherently... In a fantasy genre. They're yeah. just unrealistic at, at the base because in real life you don't have people singing their emotions unless you're my sister on a long drive because she does that. I mean, it happens to each their own. To, to each their own. To each their own. But that's, you know, just a thing. And I love that. And also how this movie uses color and how the film yes. just looks like a fantasy version of Los Angeles. And... I mean, we're definitely going to get into color because I think color is... It's a premier point of the cinematography. Color's almost a character in this movie because it's so prominent, it's bigger than life, along with CinemaScope. I mean, the fact that they made this CinemaScope is just... I fucking miss CinemaScope. Me too. I mean, some of the biggest movies were made on CinemaScope, including musicals like A Star is Born, Guys and Dolls, The King and I, Love Me Tender, Rebel Without a Cause, Giant, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. I mean, the list just goes on with all these movies that were shot on CinemaScope. It, it, CinemaScope is just beautiful because of these. It's this big frame, and everything just looks like deeper. And it's, I, I think is CinemaScope seventy millimeter. Or is it like that, or is it adjusted thirty five? I think it's seventy. I mean, I know the process is they condense the image, and then once it's projected, it it's expands. Per, it expands. I think by two and a half. So yeah, it's so like I think I think it's I think it's seventy. I want I want to say I'm. I apologize to all the all the other film nerds out there. Like I'm really yeah. bad at remembering like film stock, Me but too. I'm pretty sure Panavision seventy. But that's besides the point. But it's I love the use of the frame. I think like that big cinematic widescreen, and also it's a thing where it homages those old big fifties musicals mm-hmm. that were so big, so bloated, had these big numbers, big productions. Gene Kelly ran fucking MGM whole musical department for, like, a fucking decade. Yeah, because I'm sure that um, our previous movie that we were talking about with Gene Kelly, uh, An American in Paris, yeah. I think that one was shot on Panavision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking at them, they're very, they're very similar in, honestly, a lot of ways. I know Damien Chazelle said that when he was making this film, he pillaged American in Paris. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in this movie... That had major homages to other films. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the fact that they're talking about Rebel Without a Cause, one of your favorite films, and that's a huge, just, pinpoint of the film. And the fact that, you know, Emma Stone makes the reference, Mia, her character, makes the reference, and, you know, you have Seb, I got the bullets, and she's just like, uh-huh. And it's just like, you've never seen the movie? What do you mean you've never seen the movie? And it's just kind of seeing the... That, that's one of those things that I'm almost like, Wait a minute, how has Mia not seen the movie when she's just like, oh, I remember watching Bogart and, oh, and uh, and watching Ingrid Bergman and all these other stuff. And I'm like, how has James Dean just missed you if you're a classic Hollywood person? I don't know. I mean, there were so many movies that came out of the 40s and the 50s that you could just go 
years trying to watch every last thing that was made. So Yeah, I get that. But I mean, like, I, I feel Rebel Without a Cause is one of those films where if you're a movie person, that's, that's, is that required viewing? Like, okay, that that's actually a real question. Because I think this movie is really homaging classic Hollywood yeah. and it's really trying to make a lot of references. I mean, the ending sequence is basically a riff of American in Paris, yes. right? That that long sequence where it's like a ballet mm-hmm. and it's very interpretive. It's really great sequence. It's One beautiful. of the best. I, I, hands down, I think that's my favorite scene of the movie. Oh, the ending? The epilogue, yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I will make a point, though. There are some edges of things in this movie that I'm like, oh, I'm not a huge fan of. That could have been done better, but for some reason, that epilogue is actually just mm, flawless. Like, that's actually a great culmination of the themes of the film, of the characters, and it, it is a really wonderful moment. Well, that and you feel like this is a big Hollywood movie, or Hollywood musical, and we're like, are we going to get that big number where it's not real, it's not everyday life. It's pure fantasy. It's fantasy, and it's like, we get it, and we're thrown into it, and it's just like, I don't want it to end. Yeah. It's, you know, you have ties on to reality and fantasy. We'll talk about the epilogue later, because there's a lot to talk about it. Yeah, but but back to the my point. It's referencing all this stuff. The, the ending, which is like a lot of American in Paris in there. Yeah. They're referencing Rebel Without a Cause. Casablanca. Ca- lots of Casablancas in there. Swing and time. Swing time, yeah. And I'm wondering, if you're not a big classic movie fan, do you does this movie lose something? Like, I don't think so. Really, do you think this works completely the same, even if you're not catching all the little references and all the little details and all that stuff? Yeah, because the movie's still beautiful and romantic and entertaining. That, yeah, if you don't understand the Easter eggs, it's still going to make an impact. Now, if you're a big fan of movies, then it makes it even more fun because you're like, Oh man, that's from this movie. I'm pretty sure that's from Casablanca. Oh, this is a reference to so and so. So I think it only enhances it when you've seen a lot of these movies and see how they're paying homage to them in these small ways. Yeah, I mean, so, some of them are not small. No, no, some of them are just <laughs> I, like I feel right like in your face. They go to the Griffith Observatory. If you don't, if you don't know what Rebel Without a Cause is, you're like, what the fuck? Why are you even at this old building? I mean, they have Ryan Gosling. Or sorry, Seb. Driving down the same stretch of sidewalk that James Dean drives when he's going to park for the... Also, I would like to point out, that is some bullshit. We went there. You cannot just drive your 2001 Subaru up towards the observatory anymore. You cannot. Uh, you could either pay for a lot in parking, or you could hike up the hill, which we did. And oh my god, we regretted it like the next few days. <laughs> but it was still a fun experience. I didn't, we, I didn't realize this about the Griffith Observatory. Because I thought, it was like, oh, it's this observatory, it's in the hills. There's probably a nice bit like parking structure. We I hiked it was a, a mountain. Yes, yes, exactly. I thought it was like, oh, it's a tourist trap. Well, it is. Where's the parking structure? The fuck you mean? You park at the at the bottom of the mountain and you climb up if you want to... If you want to get in the parking lot. Or you pay, why? I think it's like 15 or 20 an hour to park yeah. at, at, at the top level. Yeah, fuck that. I'm poor. Which after that, I was like, take the 20. Like, please, <laughs> my legs can't take that again. But yeah, I mean, it. that's just a thing. Because the film does use a lot of the, like, L.A. environment. This oh, is yeah. obviously not Vancouver playing Los Angeles. No, but... this is the heart of L.A. as, you know, real as it gets. Yeah. And... Well, 
I ain't gonna say real, all right? They're they're walking down like downtown LA, and it was a much cleaner version of oh, Los Angeles. Well, yeah, of course, but I mean, <laughs> it's not like you know they're building um, facades of the buildings. Like, no, they're, yeah, they're, they're actually they're real buildings, yeah. and I I get I get that. It's I think it's one of those things where this is such a romanticized version of Los Angeles. It's kind of the thing. I think I saw this in one of uh, Chazelle's interviews that. In a lot of these old musicals, when they were setting things in Los Angeles, they would try and make Los Angeles like a European city. Yeah. They would try and romanticize and make it like Paris, mm-hmm. you know? Or it's like, oh, we're going to try and make it gritty. Something like a, like like England or Victoria, or like the Victorian era, where it's like yeah. dirty and grimy and a lot of industrial stuff. Or we're going to make it like post-war Germany, where it's like the, the depression laid over the, the land is just palatable for like the noirs and all that stuff. Yeah. But he's really shooting the film up in the hills of Hollywood, just showing the real grandeur of Los Angeles, of Hollywood, showing the observatory, showing, like, real landmarks of the city, and really trying to write his love letter to the city. He's like, no, this city is beautiful, and it should be respected. It shouldn't have to play another city for it to be cinematic. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, one of Seb's lines where he says, you know, Everyone kind of worships L.A. and, oh, God, what is the line? It's a good line. They worship, the people in L.A. worship everything and respect nothing. Exactly. That's the line. And he actually stole that from his partner, Eva Mendes, who was talking about L.A. Because it's like, yeah, there's so many different things going on. But then at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, no, I don't care. And it's like, no, you have, you know, a select group of people where it's like, wow, this city has been around for so long. It's seen so much uh, so much has been filmed here, shot here, happened here. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I really appreciate the film making its love letter to mm-hmm. Los Angeles, Hollywood, to, like, the area. Because, again, like, we're, we're from here, and I and I do appreciate that. But it's, you know, it's so fantastical that it really does feel like I recognize the land, but... I couldn't imagine walking through it, which is weird because I've been on, we've been on the actual freeway that they're on at the end of the movie. Like that big overpass at the beginning. I've been stuck in that traffic jam more than once. But it's, it is one of those things where it's, it is just a really nice sentiment of the film, but. And, And it also plays on the idea that people have of Los Angeles where they see these beautiful landmarks and buildings and they think this is how LA is. And it's like, it's like when people go to Hollywood. When they're like, okay, I'm determined, I'm going to go see oh, God, the Hollywood yeah. Walk of Fame. And it's like, yeah, you have the Sunset Strip and you have uh, Grommet's Chinese Theater. I'm going to put it out to any tourist who comes to Los Angeles. If you go to the... The Strip is not that impressive. You have a lot of the same shops where they're selling the same souvenirs. I mean, you have Hollywood and Highland with the mall, which that's cool. But there's not really a lot going on well, on the Strip. It's the other thing where it's a, it's, it's a city. Like, yeah. It's rows of bars, a bunch of homeless people, and just, like, in crowds. Like, that is Los Angeles. Yeah, and a lot of people think, you know, oh, from the movies, I'm going to see celebrities on this street. And it's very, very rare. Go to Burbank. You'll have a better chance at the grocery store. Or um, go to Beverly Hills, Rodeo Drive. You're guaranteed to see someone up there. But that, all that, all that is just so, like, it, I'm, it's not irrelevant. Because it does actually take a point of the movie where these people... Mia and Sebastian, they come to Los Angeles to follow their dream. And when they get there, they realize Los Angeles, Hollywood, La La Land, whatever you want to call it, 
is really not a place for dreams. No, I mean, even uh, towards the ending of the movie, Mia tells Seb, you know, I'm going home. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I'll stop by tomorrow. And she's like, no, I'm going home, home. So it's like, this was her dream to become an actress. And this has become home. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, you know what? I'm going to drive all the way back to Boulder because that's really my home. Let's let's just get into that of Mia's character because she's, you know, the struggling actress and she is every struggling actress stereotype, right? I she mean, goes to all the auditions. She never gets called back. She's a barista in like as her day job. And she's like, I'm going to make it. I, I dropped out of college. I came to Los Angeles. I'm going to be an actress. Big dreams. And I mean, I love that they add when they show her in these auditions. It's a bunch of girls that look kind of like her. They're all like the same variation of this character. Yeah. And it's just like, well, yeah, I can see how you kind of get lost in the crowd when everyone more or less kind of looks like you. And it's just... It's really kind of a a roulette kind of thing where you don't ever know thing, what le, what who's gonna score. And here's the here's the other thing. I appreciated her character so much because she's not a bad actress. No, she's what, a good actress. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. When you're watching the auditions, Mia, you, like, okay, traditionally in these, you if you were doing it for like comedy, oh, she's in there and she just gets a crummy audition, right? Yeah. And that's if you're doing it for comedy. If you're doing it for like a drama, and she'd be giving like a. Oscar baiting fucking mm-hmm. just tear your heart out performance, right? Mm-hmm. And that's for the drama. It's like, oh, they just don't understand her genius. But yeah. no, she's giving like solid audition performances. Like those, I've seen casting and stuff like that where people come in, you know, it's a, like 30 fucking people. They all have scripts and they come in, they read their dialogue. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's, she's like doing basically what every actress does in these, you know, casting calls or whatever. And she's pretty good. Which I appreciate because it's not caricaturized. They're no. not making fun of Mia, which is a, a really good thing. Because she's a very easy character to pull comedy out of. Yeah. But, well, I mean, she's done a lot of comedy movies. Yeah. And it's just, she's really good at comedy. And what I liked in this movie was that for all of her auditions, they brought out so many different ranges of her. So you see kind of comedic, you see serious... Well, a lot of her comedy just comes from the fact that her and Ryan Gosling just have great chemistry. Well, yeah, this was their third movie together. Was it their third? Yeah, because they did Crazy Stupid Love, and they also did Gangster Squad, and then this was their third movie. So they've had that history as a couple, because they were couples in both of those movies, too. So it's kind of nice to see that they could really walk in and, you know... Have that chemistry right away. Have that chemistry and be totally believable. Yeah, and I mean, like, the, the other thing that I was I was getting at is she's also just has a natural charisma yeah. to her, and she is kind, and she portrays herself in these in these films a lot of the times, and I don't know if this is actually in real life, I've never met the woman, mm-hmm. but she seems like kind of a goofball, and I think, yeah, no, like, that comes through in the film, and it's a very real, nice, honest portrayal. She feels like somebody, like, I, like a realistic character that you usually don't see in these kind of films that and she's seems a lot like if you were to meet her out on the street she'd be totally chill very humble and that's in all of her roles you never feel like oh my god she's <laughs> pretentious or you you never get the um angelina jolie thing where in some of her movies or in some of her the things you're just like she doesn't seem like somebody you could approach and she would be okay talking to you if you found her on the street I she guess. seems like somebody who'd be very annoyed you bugged her in the grocery store Maybe. I mean, we've never met the woman, so yeah, we don't know. True. She it's, could be totally approachable. It's true. It's but true. I like that Mia and Seb feel very real. They don't feel like... I 
Mia for me feels real. Seb feels like he's the more played up caricature of the of the idea. It's one of those things where him being a jazz musician, jazz pianist, and all that stuff is a interesting character idea. How he plays himself in the movie though feels so. He's a he's a fucking snob, basically. I feel like that's the thing he's he's Look, yeah, you can keep putting the mirror in front of my face all you want, but I'm not. I was not hoping that you would bad. see the similarities between yeah, you yeah. and Seb. Look, I am not as bad as Seb. I've he's kind of mean about how snobby he is. Like, can you admit that though? Like at the beginning of the movie, he's kind of mean. He's kind of a dick. I mean, he even says it to her. He's like, you know, I'm sorry I was curt with you, and it's like, no, that's not curt. You were just like, you know. Being an asshole. Yeah, because, I mean, he just, like, hits her with his shoulder and walks out of the restaurant. Just fucking checks checks her like it's Madden and keeps walking. Yeah. But, like, Seb's character, like, again, all credit to Ryan Gosling. I think it was really good in the film. Yeah. But it really did feel to me like the character of Sebastian was... I don't know. it It just felt like he was in a different movie. A little bit, or he was playing into a different role, because he's he wants to be the tortured artist, but really he's like the guy that just can't get over himself, and that's really the the crux of his and Mia's conflict is he kind of can't get over him himself about being like a real artist, and when he like does something for the money, he goes back and blames Mia, and Mia's like, "You were literally going to be homeless." Yeah, that that whole fight is problematical. I mean, you you think you think that that sequence is where you're like, okay, this is where the the movie section of this reality starts kicking in. I mean, you start to see it a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, but yeah. but once we get to this fight, it's like, oh yeah, it's like all roads lead to south. It's not going to be good. Yeah, and where should we jump to next? Because we've been talking about just about everything. I feel yeah, like we need yeah. to. Hone back in on a yeah. certain subject. Well, you know, that's the problem. We go on a little bit of tangents every time we start talking. Just a little bit. But so we talked about Mia. We talked a little bit about um, Sebastian. Yeah. And I, my opinions on him are probably pretty pretty firm. He's a little bit of a snob. I think Ryan Gosling does a great job in all of his sequences. But we also don't get a lot know. of information about him. Like you know, you're fucking nothing. It's like, was he from here? Did he come here from another state? It's kind of. We Unknown. Know, we know literally nothing. This movie is Mia's story. And I think that's the thing. We don't even know his last name. Uh, Wyler. Is it? Wyler Wilder or something like that, yeah. Okay. It, don't if don't worry. I looked that up on the IMDb, so... Well, no, because I was, heard somewhere I that, that. that in the, the movie, he doesn't introduce himself to Mia. I, yeah, that's another thing. I noticed that as, they, as the movie was going on. Where there's just a lot of implied information. Yeah. Like when she's saying you should call it Sebs and all that stuff. That's I the only time she says... His name. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that really goes into the fact that this story is not really about him. It's about Mia, right? Yeah. Because let, let's get into the story a little bit. Not not the plot, because going through like the plot beats, we try that experiment. It doesn't work all the time. Not always. But the, the broad story. Because this is a story about... Two people trying to follow their dreams, meeting each other in the City of Stars, and 
once they come together and once they start achieving their dreams, they just gradually grow apart and... It turns into, is it really worth it to go after your dreams or to stay in a relationship where you genuinely love the the other person? I don't even know if that's... I don't even know if that's really it because I don't... Because I understand they love each other, but I think they love each other because each one of them did something that allowed the other one to achieve their dream. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make it sound like the reason they appreciated and loved each other was because they were the stepping stone to achieve something. It was a real, honest relationship that allowed them to see something in themselves to go out and do it. Yeah, it was support. Yeah. Seb's incredibly supportive. Encourages Mia to make her one-woman show, which leads to our audition that gets her into the big movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mia's the one that encourages Seb to call uh, John John Legend. John Legend. I can't think of his uh, Keith. No, no, no. The Legend. The Legend. The Legend. Yeah, because Seb doesn't want to, you know, play modern jazz. He doesn't want to do like that that rock jazz fusion stuff. But she's like, look. You just do it. You go on tour. It gives you a chance to perform in front of people. You get to be be the artist you wanted. And it'll make you enough money to open your own club. And she really doesn't even, you know, tell him all of that. She He gets, you know, the final push when she's talking on the phone to her mom. And she's just like, yeah, yeah, he's going to open his club someday. Well, I'm not sure when. He's going to figure it out. He's working it out. And he's just seeing kind of where they're living and how the, the roof is leaking. Is and that his re- where his resentment comes from? Because he feels like... The reason he's doing this is because Mia is unsatisfied with his station in life. Like, no, you think I... he's doing that? He's doing that to just make her happy and not make himself happy. That's why he's going with Keith. I think it's you know from the start. It's you know what? Let me do this to take care of her. And then it turns into why did I do this? And then it's like I'm going to put the resentment on you because this is all your fault and it's not my fault. And it's just a thing of adulting. And adulting sucks sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's the, I think that's really the heart of the movie is, you know, a hashtag adulting sucks, yo. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what it is because at the end of it, these people who were the wild, crazy romance, they're together for a year. Yeah. And then they break up because they realize, well, we're not actually compatible as people people unless we're not very successful we're great at supporting each other but once we don't need support we're really not good together which is you know that's like a pretty honest portrayal of some relationships where i i mean i've seen that before where it's like the people who are serial relationship people you know as soon as they're out of a relationship they're back in another they're back in another one and it's a thing where you know, I'm with this person because I need support at this point in my life. And then when they're gone, I'm like, I just keep needing another person. Yeah. Because maybe it's not even like gratification. It's like you just need, like, human connection. Yeah. And I think in this movie, it's a story about these people having that human connection. It changes them in a very, you know, huge way. In a profound way. In a profound way. And then they change. They grow apart. And then... They achieve their dreams without each other, but they needed those other people to get there. Yeah. I mean, this movie is a love letter to the dreamers that drive yeah. from, that leave, you know, Iowa and come to America, or come, not Iowa to come to America, <laughs> Iowa to come to oh, Hollywood oh, oh my to become, God. you know, stars. Yeah, if you didn't know, like, uh, um, Iowa is not in America, you know, everything past the Rockies is, is just... 
America stand. It just doesn't exist. We are learning so much from Mr. Dean today. Yeah, I know. But you, you know what I mean. You know, people yes. come from like like the middle of bumfuck nowhere to Hollywood to become movie stars to try and you know try their chance at the entertainment business. You right? know, that's an interesting fact that you made because when they were uh, doing all the pre production for this movie, originally Damon Chazelle wanted Emma Emma Watson and Miles Teller. Yeah, so I thought, how different would the movie have been if you had? I mean, the story still would have worked because if she had still been British in the movie. Yeah, totally understanding, you know, someone from England coming to be an actress here in California. Yeah, I, I think they probably would have just had Emma Watson just put on an American accent. I I don't actually, I don't know if she's, she's, she's done, done, done it before. before. She has? She has. Is it, is it a good one? It's decent, yeah. Okay, because I know that's a thing with a lot of, like, British people make fun of Americans when they put on British accents. Yeah. But I'm like, guys, like, Kit Harrington can't put on a good... <laughs> like, Midwest accent to save his fucking life, all right? I'm sorry. But I think, you know, they wouldn't have had to make her American. I think it would have worked, you know... As British or you know. English, but yeah. I understand. But it's one of those things where it's like, if it's Emma Watson and Miles Teller, I feel the dynamic of the performances mm -hmm. is shifted a little bit. Uh, my opinion is I think Miles Teller's a stronger actor than Emma Watson is. And in my opinion, I think Emma Watson's stronger than Miles Teller. Yeah, I mean, a difference of opinions yeah. ever. And, but the, but in this movie, you, we can, like, again, in the blind, you're just like, okay, who's the stronger actor between Emma Stone and uh, mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling? You're just like, in the blind, most people are gonna, probably going to say Ryan Gosling. In in the blind, right? Yeah. And then you watch the movie, and you're like, no, Emma Stone is just, like, killing this. And yeah. Ryan Gosling is, he's showing up to work today. Like, no, I, I, I mean, think he's doing, I, he's doing his, he's doing a great effort. Yeah, but, I think he does an excellent job. I mean, I out mean, of the two of them. If you're comparing these two actors, yeah. like, who owns the show? Emma, of course. And it's Emma's story. But, so, it's and, just a thing. I gotcha. Yeah. But I, that is a good, an interesting question is, does this work without those two actors? I, 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 I don't know. It's just. It's one of those things where it's like, the, there's a lot of power in Emma Stone's performance near the end of the film. Because yeah. in the beginning, she's more of like this this fun, goofy character. Carefree. She, well, not more, totally carefree because... Goofier character. She's yeah. a lighter character. Yeah. Then at the end of the movie, when she does the whole song monologue sequence about her aunt, who's like, oh, she was an actress. She introduced her to like all these movies and cinema, and then she died a drunk. And that's like that's a real like emotional thing. It never the scene never breaks. No, you see a lot of emotion in her face, and she's just belting this out. And that that's a strong, huge emotional bit. I don't know if Emma Watson does that as well as Emma Stone. Grant, I never, I I don't see it. I don't think she could. But um, I'm not you know. sure. I just think that I feel like there. That's that's the tell. Can Emma Watson do that scene better than Emma Stone? Probably not. Then I don't think it would have been a better movie. I mean, I think Emma Watson would have done a great job because she's a, she's a great actress. She's a magnificent yeah. actress, but it's just, I think this role was meant for Emma Stone, and that role was meant for Ryan Gosling. Yeah. I, I think, you know, if they had been paired off with somebody else, it just, the chemistry would not have been there. You don't think it would have worked? No. I mean, maybe it is because they have the two other movies under their belt, but it's just, together they work so well. And even in those movies, they're very believable that they're... You well, know, this couple. It's also interesting because in 2016, I want to say Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone were just becoming A-list celebrities. The thing where it's like, you know, 
you know, you know, like how I guess how I define A-list celebrities like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, you know, uh, Angelina, people who you see their name and their front build on there, and you're like, well, I guess I'm gonna go see that because that actor's in there. Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone. I feel in 2016 they're not there. the The biggest movie I remember Emma Stone being in before this was Easy A. I love Easy A. It's a it's a fun comedy, and then it's Ryan Gosling. I remember. Before this movie, the only thing I vaguely remember him being in was The Notebook, but the last thing I saw him in was Goosebumps. Wow. Yeah. Long time. Long time. But, like, that's the thing. Do you do you think this is a great performance just because up till that point we didn't really know that much about the actors to put anything on them? Because if it's Emma Watson, then people are going to be like, alright, when's the, when's the owl and the wizard's going to show up? That and she was also in uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, you know, Beating the Beast, is, Beating which the Beast. is what she dropped this movie for. And I think Ryan Gosling was kind of eyed to be the Beast, and he dropped that to be in La La Land. So it's kind of weird it's to see so the switch. Weird. Yeah, I was looking into some of the casting, and it was a weird, winding road of people. They had in and out of it at weird times. I think Jeremy Renner was going to be Seb at one point. Huh. I well, have you ever heard Jeremy Renner sing? No. He okay. He did like this bit. I think it was on the View or Oprah or whatever. I saw the clip. That motherfucker got a voice on him. Interesting. He's, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really weird because you look at him, you're like, okay, this looks like a guy who just got off a long haul trucking excursion and is about to go like bang the diner waitress. But then you hear him sing, and you're like, nah, nah, that that guy's a rock star waiting to happen. But whatever. I think Bradley Cooper was up at some point. There's a weird winding road of actors and actresses that were thought of for this. But besides the point, I think the story at its heart is just about these two characters coming together and finding each other and then realizing that they just don't work together. And then that whole ending sequence happens. I mean, it's the same with a lot of relationships. I mean, it doesn't even have to be romantic relationships. It could be friendships. It could be, you know, whatever. It's just, you know, some people come in, they get you through a rough patch, or they kind of help you springboard onto the next part of your life. And you never talk to them again. You're grateful for what you had. And then it's just on to the next. Yeah. And then and then you have that ending sequence. The American in Paris homage, which, not as good as American in Paris. I'm going record. But this is pretty good. This is pretty good. When it hits that 8mm footage, I ain't gonna lie, that shit hits different. Like, I don't know what it is about Super 8, 8mm, like, silent home movie footage. I just, that hits me right in the fucking feels. You cried. Uh, I I know I teared up in the theater, but watching it this time, I dried. No tears. But, besides the point. The ending sequence of the movie is really, I don't want to say, like, the thesis or, like, the final statement on the entire film, mm-hmm. right? It's all, there's no dialogue. No. It's all ballet to this, like, jazz orchestral music going kind on. Kind of like an American in Paris kind of where like there's, Paris. there's no dialogue. It, it's a ballet. Yeah. And we're going through this and it's very fantastical. We're seeing what their relationship could have been like. Yeah. And, and that's heartbreaking once the scene ends and you realize, no, this is the reality. I mean, I, I was... I think it was heartbreaking. I was hoping, I'm like, oh, please, let them end up together and then... Let Mia leave her husband and daughter to go be with Seb, the well, club n- owner. Well, not leave them, it's just... 
You, get, you, get that divorce, you know. No, no, you see, you know, the two roads that you could take. And which road do you take? And it's like, I was hoping maybe she takes the road where they both take the road where they end up together. And it's like, I yeah, think this that is the dream, but whatever. That wouldn't have been honest, though. That's no. not. I don't think that's an honest ending. I think the ending we got is the most honest ending you could have gotten for this kind of a love story. Because it's a story about people who do honestly and truly love each other and will honestly and truly always love each other. But they just they just don't work together. It's and not like a thing where it's a toxic relationship no. or anything. It's just a thing where we are just, we absolutely love each other, but we're just not that compatible. We're not the kind of people who can, I don't can even, be with each other. I don't even think it's an issue of compatibility. I think it's just... Do I really sacrifice what I've dreamt of for all this time for you? I don't. Th- I don't even think it's that. I don't think that it's that selfish. That that's the thing. the The whole thing of looking at this as the love story makes the thematics of it a little weird because through the movie you don't really. I don't really get why they why they broke up completely. I have an. I have a pretty decent idea. Where it's like, okay, Seb resents Mia because he has that feeling, oh, the only reason you wanted to be with me because I was unsuccessful and you could look down on me. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah, and then Mia's like, oh, you know, the only reason, you know, you have me around is so I can can just be your, you know, hanger-on girlfriend while you be, you know, the famous musician. You don't want me to have my own dreams. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where they're, they're flinging, they're flinging spit at each other. Yeah. But it's it's so hollow. I think the, I the nail in the coffin is when he doesn't show up to her show. You see, like that's the thing. But then, usually in in romantic movies like this, oh, he missed her show for this photo shoot. Blah blah blah. He shows up late. Then she drives off, and then makes the grand romantic gesture, drives out to Boulder City, picks her up, takes her to the audition, and it's supposed to be the thing where. Oh, after she gets the audition, they love her, and then, oh, the, the grand romances rekindle, and they live happily ever after. That's the traditional, like, yeah. story. But this, it does take the divergence where he does the grand romantic gesture, and she's like, I'll always love you, but I don't think we can be together. No, and- she no, she asks him, you know, where are we? And he's kind of just, you know what, I'm not really sure. And he sacrifices. He's like, you know what? I think if you're going to do this, you need to do this the correct way. You need to give everything that you have. You can't let me be in the shadows of, well, my boyfriend's back in America. I really got to rush and come back to him. It's like, well, no, if you get another gig or something, go for it. Don't even second guess it. Just keep it, it going. It's the thing where, I, do you think it's like a selfless act as why they're giving each other up? Yeah, it's a thing of, look, we'd be amazing together. But we're always going to wonder, what if? Mm. And it's just this thing of, you know what, if you take me out of the equation, you could pursue that and it's never a what if. We knew what we had when we were together. It was never a what if if, you know, we got together. It's just that thing of, I'm always going to miss you. I just feel like that that ending, it just, I understand it if they're doing it out of sympathy and out of like a selfless act for each other. I just feel it's not set up well enough it's one of those things where it's like i don't know about you but it doesn't feel like a real breakup situation right well i mean it's not like you know the breakups that we see in movies where people or, are I mean, screaming like a and real, crying i don't even yeah. mean like a real life breakup it's like you know 
I can't, I can't really bring myself to understand the two of them saying it's, it's over, even it's over, but it's over because of what? Like, what in the movie have we seen? And it's like, okay, Seb, he's, he got kind of, he's kind of pissy Mm -hmm. at Mia for like reasons that are not justified unless it's in his eyes. And then Mia's just kind of not okay being what Seb wants her to be. And I'm like, actually, wait, I kind of made my own point. I think that's actually a pretty decent (laughs) reason why you would break up somebody. Yeah, because you see... I'm sorry, uh, but I just went on a whole tangent around about to answer my own fucking question. If you could only see the epiphany in his eyes pop as he said that, it was yeah. amazing. But well, well, articulating that actually makes sense. Yeah, fucking, I would probably leave Ryan Gosling if he was this level of kind of pissy asshole, and I would probably leave Mia if she, or yeah, and I can totally see why Mia would leave him, where he's where she's like, I don't want to be your you know trophy wife, and I can see that because it's like. And I don't want to work some boring nine to five job when music is my passion. It's my life. Yeah, Seb is Seb's over here where he's like, I'll always have some level of resentment if I'm successful, and I feel I can't do that and be with you at the same time because he'll just direct that resentment towards her for you know pushing him to like be successful, which yeah, is yeah, it's and, it's the issue yeah. where when they were just dreamers and just getting together. It worked because there was nothing, there was no roadblocks. And then once she sees that he's out on the road, well, it's just really her on her own. You don't see her friends because her friends are probably working. They're They're doing other things. They're they're gone out of the movie after the first act, let's be real. And then you see, you know, the other side with him. He's traveling and she's working on her show. They're on different sleep schedules, so you don't really get to talk to each other. So, yeah, you, you start to see the shift and the divide. And it's kind of like... Well, I don't really feel like I'm in a relationship. I kind of feel like... I'm just living with a person. I'm living with a person that I either see when she's asleep or she's out in the morning or he's hopping on a plane. So, yeah, you see that divide. And after that, it's kind of like, well, I have a band that's touring and you're possibly going to become an Academy Award winning actress. It's like, what do we really have tying each other? Yeah, and it's also one of those things where... They don't really have any any commonalities between each other to really have a lot of like a foundational thing to build I mean, a relationship on. We don't really see like too much into their personal life, you know. Oh, they, well, that's they because love Seb this. has one personality. He is a jazz. He's he's a snobbish jazz geek, and Mia has a struggling actress personality that really wants to achieve something. Mia has character. Seb kind of doesn't. I wonder if that's like why I. I just rub up against Sebastian's character and it's just not, it's sandpaper kind of thing where it's like, he doesn't really, there's not a lot there to latch onto. There's not a lot there other than he's a, a snobbish jazz guy that has a dream. I think he's just afraid to be open because, mm-hmm. you know, we meet him and he's very kind of cold and isolated. And once we get to that epilogue scene, right before he spots Mia, he comes out on the stage and, you know, he claps somebody's back and he kind of turns into a showman when he's behind the microphone. Yeah. And it's not until he sees Mia where it's just like the words are just gone. It's just like he gives well, her that kind and, of like welcome. And that's the thing. That's I think that's why the ending sequence works is because in the, I guess, the reality of the film, he's just playing this piano to everybody. And it's like he's expressing his 
his emotions and all that mm-hmm. stuff through the music. Yeah. And that really does come through in the film cinematically. It's it's just it's a really interesting movie. Yeah. I think the movie actually has a lot of like good elements to it. Some parts are great elements to it. Yeah. I just don't know how I would I keep coming up against the thing where there's still like like I can see the edges edges of the film and I'm like some things don't completely smooth over for me. So like I mostly it comes down to like the Sebastian character. I think the movie's almost too cute for its own good. I don't it, think it's that cute. No, well, it's the thing where it's like I don't mean cute like it's oh, it's, oh look how cute. It's like it's too cute where it's like hey guys, we're watching Rebel Without a Cause. We're at the the Egyptian. Oh, oh, we're going to the 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 Griffith Observatory, guys. Hey, look look at this, all you film nerds out there. Like it's it's one of those things where it's a little bit like I, look. I thought it was done well. I it's, thought it was fine, but yeah, it's you one know, of those like, things where it's like every other scene, it's like okay, Mia has like a black a black cat uh, poster in the back of her thing, which is awesome. There's all there. She has a big poster thing of Ingrid Bergman, right? Or yeah, which I was Bergman. super jealous. It's like I loved her apartment. I mean, it's not my style. It, it's a little too bright and cutesy for me, but it's like I love all the the it was movie like, posters. I want gray, more gray, gray on top of gray. I want a gray hoodie with a gray logo. Okay, Seb. Can yeah. I can I have the microphone? Absolutely not. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, yeah. but I really like that transition because when they go see Rebel Without a Cause, it's for research. Even yeah. though they're they're very much into each other, it's research. She's gonna go see it for the first time. And I don't know if you've gone to a lot of screenings where they screen the movies on thirty five. I've seen a few, yeah. Um, when I went to the Egyptian, I went to go see Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. And right as the movie was starting, there was a problem with the celluloid, and the screen went out just like it does in the movie. Oh, you had a burned cell. So that was kind of like, oh, hey, I've experienced that before, yeah. so that was cool. <laughs> I know, I get that, I understand that, but it's one of those. It's one of those things where I think the movie really relishes in the whole like, you know, wink to the camera, nudge your buddy, be like, hey. You guys, you guys get this, right? You guys get these old movie references. It's one of those things where I'm like, but I think the it, movie's leaning on it a lot for me. But I think it's cool that you know, okay, well, the movie didn't work out, and her idea is like, you know, well, I have an idea. Yeah, they I mean, just go to Griffith Observatory, exactly, and the Rialto, which they're watching Rebel Without a Cause, and is a, a pretty famous theater. It's in South Pasadena. I, again, they're just like, hey guys, we're at the Rialto. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Everybody knows what's up, right? Where, right. Where they filmed Thriller, the music video, uh, so many other movies were. Again, shot it's there. one of those things where this movie is movie trivia reference central. That they're just like it, I, they're leaning. It's a to... love letter to Los Angeles. You yes, kind of have to do I that. I get that, but it leans so heavily on it. I'm like, can we just have them in like a normal coffee? Can we get like a real dialogue sequence with the two of them? Can we get them having, like, more more dramatic moments? Can we get them in the apartment again? Like, it's one of those things where they're really, like, oh, we're gonna walk through the Warner Brothers' back lot so we can show off all these, like, things where she talks about that window right there. That's where, you know, Humphrey Bogart was in in Casablanca. Which, don't get me wrong, cool, but it's one of those things where they're like, hey, guys, we got to film in the Warner Brothers back lot. I'm, I'm going to show you this. Check this shit out, right? I'm having Emma Stone say this so I can put it in the movie. It's it's one of those things. I get it. Damien Chazelle loved filming this, but it's one of those things. But I think but, that's more you just know. you because I get excited about filming locations and stuff that's been in movies and you're just like, whatever, it's a building. But meanwhile, yeah, well, it's meanwhile, 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 yeah. 
If I can make my point, please. Sure. We go to the Bradbury building where Blade Runner was shot, and you won't stop talking about it for two hours straight. I fucking... Well, the Bradbury building's a cool fucking building. It is, I but it's Blade like, you're, you're very impartial when it comes to stuff like this, but if it's something that's like <laughs> deep-rooted in a like that you like, oh my god, I, we will never I hear the end of it. I understand I am a hungry hypocrite. Yes, I, you are. I understand that. But my thing is, in the movie, they're doing this, and I can I will completely admit this is probably just me being, like, pedantic. It's probably only me. I agree. But it's one of those things where it's like, let's get back to having a... Let's get back to the narrative at hand. We don't need a whole lot of the, like, cutesy wink and nudges at the camera. We don't need a lot of it. I understand why it's there. I appreciate it. But I think it's a little much. I understand if you are saying I'm wrong. I get it. Aye, aye, Captain Pedantic. Yeah. But... With that, do you have any other big points you wanted to talk about before we get to the wrap-up evaluation? And we got we got Faith is Out because we're like an hour in. I mean, it's a really good movie. We've got a lot to say about it. But one thing I wanted to say about the planetarium. I don't know if you remember, because I know you watch Swing Time for your other yeah. podcast. Did that scene in the planetarium remind you of anything from Swing Time? You mean the ending dance number? Where I think it's kind of like a like a black it's a granite big, floor. It's a big ballroom, yeah. And they go up to the upper level and the stars are behind them. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people have kind of, you know, cued into, hey, that's the same scene. And I'm like... To reiterate, this movie's like, hey, guys, you know every dance sequence in here is stolen from a Fred Astaire or a Gene Kelly movie? Just throwing it out there. Well, I mean, when they're... Every out, last one. <laughs> when they're out there at, uh, what is it, Kathy's Corner on Mount St. Hollywood when they're doing the big dance um, mm-hmm. over the hillside? yeah. I mean, right off the bat, that's a, a nod to Gene Kelly and singing in the rain when he's yeah. singing on the lamppost. And it's just like, oh my God, singing in the rain, but also to, to a reiter- beautiful se- sequence. To reiterate, this movie is just like, I really hope you guys are really brushed up on your classic Hollywood because it, ooh, buddy, we paying off. But yeah, it's I, I get it. It's a really good, there's a lot of good homages in this. It's a really beautiful movie. I mean, even uh, with that sequence, going back to the Mount uh, Mount Hollywood hillside, they shot that in 30 minutes. Yeah. They had to compete with the sun. So it's just like, wow, it's like this beautiful dance number and song between the two of them was just done in 30 minutes? Yeah. That's what happens when you cast good actors. Yeah, I mean, it paid off having them, you know, practice the dance for three months and then, you know, come in and just, boom, we're done and we're out of here. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just surprised that the background was real, because it's, it's so purple. Yeah. I mean, I I know there's probably a lot done in, like, color correction yeah. at the end, but it's like, you need a base to work off of. Yeah. And I'm not, I was surprised. That was, that's a beautiful canvas to work off I mean, off we of. get some beautiful sunsets. All right, Boo, but um, before we forget, because I know you brought this up about color earlier in the podcast, and we've done this a million times, where we're like, oh, we'll get to it later, and we never fucking do. Yes. So this is your chance to redeem yourself before the year's over. My chance or your chance? Because you usually cut me off and then it's like, hey, I had like a ton of facts and points to make and you're like... Oh, look, I'm about to cut you off again and just move wow, on to the next thing. So you wow. either get to it or you don't. Wow. Okay, so color plays a huge part in this movie. I really think it plays a character because we see the moods kind of shift in the movie. So in the beginning, it's very romantic. It's uh, very fun and bright. And then once we start to see kind of the shift in their relationship, it gets a lot darker I mean, even their apartment, the color changes. That's a Vertigo reference. That's why it's that neon green. Which is beautiful. I mean, I know it's kind of showing their struggle at the time and green for envy. But I just, I like 
that dark green on the wall with you know the black curtains. It just it works. Yeah, I mean, it it goes to the fact that it the color in the film helps portray the fantasy element of yeah. the of the movie, and it's one of those things where most movies nowadays don't really do that. No, like I I will uh, I don't want to accuse people I know of doing this, but a lot of people I know say. Oh, we're going to film something? Yeah, we'll just use all the lights in the room. Like, we'll just make it supernatural yeah. so oh, we don't have to light anything because I want everything to look real and gritty. And I'm like, yeah, but you know there's like 70, 80 years of people using dramatic lighting to tell the story and it's also just looks fucking better? Yeah. And this movie really does that where, like, it uses it uses really vibrant colors. It uses, like, really dramatic lighting effects and it's really just... A lovely looking movie. Yeah, I mean, let alone the scene of um, Seb on the pier in Hermosa Beach. I mean, that that scene is beautiful where it's just, I mean, the cinemascope helps because you look yeah. like you're there walking on the pier. And then you just have this purple sunset and it's just, you kind of feel the melancholy when he's singing City of Stars. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you look at sequences like that and... God, you just want to, like, stare at that sunset. You just want to be there. It's so it's so pretty. I think that's the thing. The movie, overall, if I had to describe the the way the movie looks in photography, it's just pretty. It's like, oh, how does it look? How is it, like, cinematic? Does it look like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia? No, it just looks fucking pretty. Yeah, it looks like the way that people envision L.A. Yeah, you know, it's very, a, the dream world. The dream. It's very beautiful. Um... I mean, I love the lighting in their apartment, even though it's showing their struggle. It's just, to kick it back to you with the dramatics, there's just something about dramatic lighting, like kind of like noir movies, yeah. where it's just absolutely stunning. It's like, it may be a, a sad time in someone's life, but it's just, it's gorgeous to be seeing that. Yeah. Because it works. It really does. I will say that the movie is... It really does look like it was made by a master craftsman. Yeah. Somebody who really knew that... They knew exactly what they were making, and they knew all the things to make that great. To, like, really emphasize the things about musicals mm -hmm. that make musicals just wonderful fantasy films, wonderful love stories... All the things that make musicals good. I mean, even there, color it, theory is used in this movie. A lot of it. Yeah, color theory is used in, like, every film. It, at least all the good ones. But, I mean, it's it stands on its own in this movie because, you know, we could go with the lighting of sets. I mean, the lighting when Mia runs out of the restaurant to run to Seb when they're going to go see Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. And it's just this beautiful light purple sky and the flowers There's are falling. There's so much purple in this and movie. And it's just like, oh my god, it's like, that's gorgeous. <laughs> you just want to live in these frames, don't you? Yes, I mean, along with Miyazaki films, yes, this was a, <laughs> would be another world that I would like to live in. Um, even the costuming, I mean, when we meet Mia and up until she starts dating Seb, she wears a lot of bright, vibrant colors. Yeah, I think there's a point to that. Is she feels like she's somebody who's trying to stand out mm -hmm. in the crowd. And then every time we see Seb, he's in these kind of drab, toned down clothes. Yeah. Well, like old looking suits, really plain wear, what have you. And it's one of those things where even the way they dressed depicts their two differing personalities. And then it's so interesting to see that when Seb takes off and his band is, you know, becoming popular... 
he's starting to wear the more vibrant clothes, the stuff that you would see on stage. And, and Mia he looks kind of, so uncomfortable. He does. He's like, you know, this really isn't my thing. And then we see Mia kind of start to dress down because she's focused on her play and it's more, I'm at home writing or I'm out, you know, in a restaurant writing. It's not, I'm trying to kind of, you know, stand out in the crowd. It, it's interesting because... Seb goes from being the artist to the performer. And yeah. Mia goes from being the performer to the, the artist. artist. And it's a thing where they're both getting something from the other's perspective. And it's portrayed in the color and the costume and all that stuff. But once they're in the other's perspective and they're just like, how the fuck can you live like this? Exactly. Like, I just don't, I just don't understand. And that's really, that's probably more of the crux of why they're just so incompatibles they're so opposite in like the personalities and like what they want what they desire mia wants to be on, on stage performing she wants to to like make people feel something with her performance and seb wants to compose he wants to to make music he wants to be the the artist yeah right? you know he wants to have his club that's gonna be amazing and people are having it's gonna a great be, time gonna be stuff to like make jazz jazz again you know yeah. make jazz great but i don't need to be the star of it I want to be there to enjoy it myself, to play the piano, and let the people that are there to listen to the music and dance, let them be the star of the show. Yeah. And I think with that, it kind of takes me back to the beginning of the movie where we see Mia at the party with her friends. Yes. And Where know, her friends disappear for the rest of the film. They disappear, and we just see kind of Mia go into the bathroom. And I, I saw someone that compared that to Stanley Kubrick, uh, his quote, uh, A Picture Within a Picture. Oh, yeah, like frames within frames. Frames within frames. And it's just, you know, we're seeing Mia as she's looking at herself through the mirror. And it's this, you know, beautiful, you know, dark red bathroom. And then she comes back out and it's just everyone's moving in slow motion. And mm. it's just like you've got like the confetti or whatever falling in slow motion. And it's kind of just, you know, her making her way through this crowd seeing, you know, okay, where do I really fit in amongst these people? Yeah. I know in that scene, I love the transition of the person jumping off the balcony and into the water when the camera follows. Mm -hmm. It's just, I love that we're going from, you know... It really gets into the dynamics of the camera. Yeah, camera dynamics, but we're also seeing, okay, this is the real world, and then we're diving into the water, and everyone's diving into the water. It, it goes also with um, the scene at the, the, the Lighthouse Cafe, mm -hmm. where he used the same technology, or not even technology, it's the same technique that he used in Whiplash, to show, um, I can't think of his name. He's in this movie, too. When he's directing... J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. When he's directing uh, Miles Teller on the drums. Mm -hmm. And they do it in this movie where Seb's playing and she's dancing and it's just whipping the camera back and forth. Just yeah, yeah. Two just of them. A, it's a bunch of whip pans. Yeah, and it's just a non, you know, a non-stop scene. They're just continuing. And I think that adds to the beauty of the movie. You know, technique, color. Um, it's all the freneticism of the film. Yeah, because it's not just... Oh, well, it's a beautiful story, so I kind of avoid, you know, everything else. It's like, no, there's so much in this story that makes it beautiful all at once. There's a lot of moving pieces, and it just works in this movie. Yeah, I really think this is just one of those movies that is just... It's just so well-crafted. Yeah. But I think it's about that time for us to figure out where does it go? Where does it sit on your scale of 1 to 10? I'd give it a 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10? Yeah. Almost almost the perfect movie? If they ended up together, it would have been the perfect movie. I think if they ended up together, this would have been a 2 for me. 
I think as is, this is everything is a two for you. No, like that. I think if they end up together, it's dishonest to the story, and it's dishonest to the characters. But as it is, I can I can agree. This is like an eight nine movie. This is a really fucking good movie. Yeah, I mean they throw so much back from the past. I mean we even have title cards in this movie. Yeah, and I love that the title cards kind of play into the rise and fall of their relationship. I mean, granted, every title card has its own thing, except for fall, and that's when we really start to see the the problems in the relationship and the big fight that they have. So it's like a lot of thought was put into this movie. Oh yeah, I mean, I really do think the film as a whole just it just works, and that's one of those things where the things that I like rub against to it, I'm like, ah, I'm not a huge like, I'm not really digging it, or it's like, ah, I think that could have been done a little bit better. It's one of those things where I I'm not calling this a perfect movie. I will say this: I'm not even sure this is. Damien Chagall's best movie because I've I've heard Whiplash as, an, as a masterpiece I haven't seen it I probably I will watch it, it soon um but honestly yeah I think this movie is just so solid across the board I think it's telling a really lovely story I think the homaging though is rampant and a lot and a little overwhelming it's in still done opinion. in my opinion but it's so done so well the music uh, okay I'm gonna be honest with you there's I I can't hum a single tune from this from this movie, but the Mia song at the audition is the best by far, by mm. far. There's not a single song even close because that one tells a story, is emotional to the character, and absolutely works. Not even their theme. Mm. Okay, do you mean the the their theme where it's the, like the music when they're doing the ballet, or do you mean the theme of City of Stars? No, I mean like Mia and Sebastian's theme, the theme that he's playing in the steakhouse. And she comes in and, you know, she's just drawn to him. Um, I think that's a, that's a good musical number, but I don't think it's the best in the movie. I don't think so. I don't know. I think it's very strong. I mean, it's able to pull her character off the street. And then when she's at dinner with Greg. Well, I admit it's a strong musical number. It's not the best in the movie. Well, no, I'm not talking about musical number. I'm just talking about music in general, because this is a musical, so... Yes, and I, I will keep going again. Not even close to Mia's audition. Hmm. Not even a little bit. Because, I mean, I love the entire album, the score. You... It's like... <laughs> After we got this movie, you listened to the album for like a month in my it, car. It's good music. Yeah, it's good. It's good music. But in terms of like the film and the st- story it's telling... There's one song that I think really does get to the heart of their of of a character, their emotion, who they are as a person, expresses like everything you need to know about them, and that's Mia's song. You know, it, it's her about like growing up and her and her dreams, why she has these things, where she wants to go, like how it's been hard for her, how the person she aspired to be just had such a a rough downfall how she just wants to just be a dreamer she is a dreamer and she just wants to live her dream yeah that that song best by far yeah it's the most raw and real song in the the the, movie in the fantasy that's the realest shit in the room yeah and then we have the epilogue which just builds off of mia and seb's theme into all the songs from the movie and we kind of see the the beginning and the ending of this dream relationship that Mia has, her last dream of the movie. Yeah. And they both walk away from that, kind of acknowledging 
we had a good time. We're okay. Yeah. You know, we, we get that, you know, kick it back to an homage when, <laughs> when she walks into his club and he sees her for the first mm. time. That's Casablanca. That's Rick seeing uh, nah. Ilsa and Victor walk in. I was waiting for Seb to, to look at Mia, the smile, the nod, thumbs up, Top Gun. And that was and like end of the movie. Oh god! It was gonna flash back. Uh, Sebastian was gonna be in a fucking F one fifty. He'd be like, "You always got my." Tech no, they were they were gonna play Danger Zone to end the movie. Okay, don't even act like you wouldn't have been hyped if Danger Zone popped on. You know, Danger Zone I, pops on. I'm 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 getting up. You know, I may hyped. have Danger Zone in my Spotify playlist, but it doesn't mean I want to see it at the end of this movie. You may or may not have listened to Danger Zone on the way here to hype yourself up for recording. Ah, uh, no, I think we did a lot of talking. It happens. It happens. But yeah, so overall, movie 8, 9, I can 100% see why this would be somebody's favorite movie. 100% see why this was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Understand why it won six of them. Totally get this movie. Totally agree with a lot of the points. There's a few things I have such minor, admittedly nitpicky issues over, but... Dean hates film history. I love film history. Also, shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, Film History, The History of Film. Go listen to those guys. They're awesome. They are really great. But yeah, honestly, really dig the really dig the movie. Um probably one of the better probably one of the best movies I've seen in the last couple of years and at least in 2016. Yeah. Would recommend going and see it. I think if you're a fan of old movies, you'll love it. And even if you're not, I think you'll just vibe on it. It's a really fun musical. Yeah, it is. But next week, we're going to try and have a good time. Because we're bringing, we're bringing the, the crew together. Right? Are we? I mean, I think so. So next week is our Christmas extravaganza. Where you, me, the members of the other podcast are going to come together. And we're going to watch a movie. And it's going to be a surprise. Is it going to come out, I believe, Christmas Eve? It's going to be a surprise to all of us. <laughs> it will be. It will but, be a surprise to all of us. But it will be coming out the week of Christmas. Um, I'm not really sure what day Christmas lands on this year. But it'll be that week. We'll give you a warning ahead of time. Yeah, so look out for that. You know, So you can open up our little podcast on Christmas morn and listen to it. But if they wanted to do that, where can they find us? Well, if you guys want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can also find us on YouTube. Yes, you can go to our YouTube channel, In The Frame. That's in the frame at YouTube.com. See, I even did the YouTube.com, so you guys can't have an excuse for not being able to find it. Wow. Exactly. But you can find this podcast, the Film Club Podcast, as well as the Film Odyssey Podcast, which me and my brother do, where we talk about the AFI top 100 films of all time and with that boo we'll see you next week at the film club have a great week everybody